Dr. Courtney Rose. And I'm Dr. Patty Rose. And welcome to the Ivy Roses Podcast. Where we talk about everything that matters and that's important and we think there's something to say about it. Well, not everything's going to be important, but at least it'll be fun to talk about. It's been a long time. We've been away. We had a little break. We weren't recording, but we're so happy to be back. And we had a little break because sometimes, you know, life just gets in there and you have things to do and things that are important and you just have to stop for a little bit and breathe and then come back. So we are coming back with such a great show. Such a great show. We have a guest and we're excited to have our guest, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Now, I want to start by saying something, and then I'm going to turn this over as we ask our questions. But so you all know that this is the Ivy Roses, and we were just chatting and realizing mm-hmm. that Dr. Marielle Bouquet's last name refers to flowers, mm-hmm. a bouquet of flowers. And she'll explain that more. And of course, we're the Ivy Roses, so we feel that connection. The yeah. garden is flourishing. Yes. The garden is flourishing. Blossoming, flourishing. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful show today. And not only that, but she is also a graduate of an Ivy League institution as well, and the same one that we went to. Mm-hmm. So Courtney and I have different Ivy League schools, as you know, in terms of um, her attending Harvard and I attended Yale, but we both attended Columbia mm-hmm. and so Dr. Marielle Bouquet also attended um, Columbia University Teachers College. So mm-hmm. Teachers College, yeah. we give you a shout out because <laughs> we are alumna. And the last thing um, that I'm gonna say and then I'm going to just proceed with us asking her questions and talking to her is that she identifies as an Afro-Latinx. So we want to find out exactly what is that identification and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Marielle. Thank you. And let us begin. Mm-hmm. So Courtney, do you mind if I start with the first question and then we go from there? Not at all. Go ahead. Okay. Would you like to <laughs> say anything by way of introduction about yourself or do you want us to proceed with questions? I just want to start by saying I am just honored to be amongst the roses and for me, this is like a long time coming since <laughs> this podcast began. I was like, I need to get in there. Yes. So the fact that I'm sitting with y'all <laughs> in this beautiful home when this kente cloth is in front of us <laughs> and all of this flourishing hair and <laughs> these beautiful personalities and people and humans with these incredible like accomplishments, I just living my life right now well we're so glad to have you and that's another thing that we all have in common we don't want to miss that but we are all naturalistas that's right so we're all sitting here with the natural hair Mm -hmm. and you know within that we know there's power Mm -hmm. so we bring that power to the table and each of us has our hair you can't see us but each of us has our hair out and we're just sitting here and just being natural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with that being said, let's start with uh, your educational background in terms of how did you get to Columbia Teachers College and why did you choose your field of study? Oh my goodness, so it's a, a pretty long trajectory, but the short version of it is that I was, um, I studied journalism at Rutgers University 
Um, journalism was a passion of mine that was driven by my migrant history to the U.S. because um, it was marked by not being able to be with my father for 10 years because um, he didn't get the, the residential, um, you know, kind of, they call them alien, which no one is an alien in any country. Um, we're all humans, but we had the resident alien, you know, profile within the U.S. My dad did not get it, so my dad was a reporter in the Dominican Republic where I was born, and, you know, my, now that I kind of understand the human psyche and kind of how it works and what was kind of, you know, connecting me to my dad was the profession. I mm. connect very much with my dad in terms of my personality, and mm. it made a lot of sense for me to reenact his profession here. And so I wanted to go into the field that he was in, and I studied journalism. I went into advertising thereafter. And in that time, I realized that I really wanted to um, engage in some work within my community. So I found myself in Newark, New Jersey, where it's my hometown. And I started doing a lot of work within the community on the weekends. That turned into weekends and nights. I would literally be um, doing uh, volunteer-based work for like eight hours in the evening after work. Like oh. it was like so intense and I was like, this needs to be my profession. This is where my heart and soul is. And so um, I took a leap of faith and started talking to someone in a program at Seton Hall, um, Dr. Sandra Lee, who then helped me to not only get myself into the work of psychology at the master's level, but also inculcated in me the idea of transitioning into the doctorate level. And I'm coming from a very low-income background, a background that doesn't really kind of tie into the Ivies. I wasn't really familiar with um, what an Ivy League institution was or what Columbia was, and she really oriented me around like connecting me to the Ivies and, and, and finally landing at, at Columbia, um, which was a journey in and of itself, as you might imagine. Yes, we're going to get into that. <laughs> yes, because we, we uh, definitely enjoyed our education um, at Columbia Teachers College, but mm -hmm. we want to talk about that too. Yeah. So Courtney, any thoughts before we move on? Because I have so many questions. Go ahead. Let's not. I think that, um, just to preface, Mariella and I have just a powerful sisterhood yes. of our own. We met while we were both working on our doctorates at first year. At first first year at mm -hmm. Columbia yeah. and we had a pretty powerful experience. Mm -hmm. um, Kindred spirit connected yes. right away <laughs> at a woman of color conference. Yes, right? a woman of color. It was so beautiful. It just happening in a room on campus and both of us showed up and it was such a beautiful day. So, um, I'm excited to have you here because I know um, I've personally been moved by the work that you're doing. So when we get into that, I'm excited to hear your thoughts. But I'm interested in your questions. Perhaps. Okay, so I have a couple of questions. So you know that my work is largely around culture, cultural competency, proficiency, diversity, all of those kinds of things as a component of what I do. So there's a couple of words that you said that I think would be beneficial for us to all learn more about. Mm -hmm. So you identify as Afro-Latinx. Could you explain both of those words and then 
how they come together. Yes, absolutely. So um, those words have a lot of intentionality um, behind them, and there is a hyphenation to that word. So, and and that's intentional as well. Um, and there have been some people that have like done a lot of modifications of the word in order to integrate it even further. But basically, uh, individuals that, like myself that identify as Afro Latinx um, identify. Um, uh, as people of the African diaspora existing within the Latinx context. And so um, we were people that were uh, transitioned into the Americas, primarily South America and, and the Caribbean um, by way mostly um, of the slave trade and the, then the transitions that happened in the, mi the migration process throughout the Americas, you know, thereafter. And so I'm a product of that and a proud product of that, which is why uh, I proudly identify as Afro-Latinx, especially because the Afro comes before the Latinx. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that is that my identity is more salient in the context of my Afro-Indigenous roots than it is in my Latinx roots. I'm a proud Latina, but I am a very proud Afro-Latina. My Afro roots really predominate. My identity, my navigation through this earth is predominated by my racial identity, and so mm -hmm. it's a very intentional identification, um, and one that is always very transient, is always in transition, because I think as as we learn more about ourselves as Afro people within the Latinx context, we consider how much more we can inculcate our true selves into this word, and this word has had multiple transitions. I, it was a moment when the identification was Latinegra, and mm. the, the reason behind that was because it was created as one word, because the Afro Latinx or Black Latinos, they started as Black Latinos, were two separate words. Mm. And people were saying primarily Lilian Comasias, which is an, an Afro Latina or Latinegra uh, clinician who's a psychologist, she started um, a movement around, you know, the, um, the conversation around how these two words being two separate words were representative and symbolic of how disjointed we are with our community and mm -hmm. how disjointed our identities are. Mm -hmm. And so she decided to merge the words. And of that came a lot of other, you know, like flows of consciousness. And then eventually, like we landed at Afro-Latinx, um, which is very all-encompassing and is a hyphenated term for all of those reasons. So what is the X for? Can the X, I love that question. So the yes. X is actually uh, referring to uh, individuals that do not identify within the gender binary. So not Afro-Latino or Afro-Latina, mm -hmm. which is very gender specific, uh, but people that are gender queer or non-binary um, have uh, the, the inclusion within the term. So we are all Afro-Latinx people, and within that, you can identify, like I do, Afro-Latina, because I identify as a woman. Mm -hmm. as a so you can sort of remove the X, because mm -hmm. when, when I was learning Spanish, um, one of the things that I learned is la lingua es 
sexista, mm-hmm. meaning yeah. that you know you have the <laughs> L and the la and yes. so forth yes. all throughout, and yeah. so this gives you the opportunity with the X to remove that, and right. then mm-hmm. you can add it subsequently right. or in clarifying yourself. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you can use both <laughs> if you wish. You know, it's based on your self-identification, and mm-hmm. it, it empowers the person to identify as they wish. Okay, and the other question that I have is when you were describing your family's mm-hmm. experience in coming to the United States, you used the word migrant mm-hmm. in terms of immigrant. Is that deliberate? And yes. if so, why migrant versus immigrant? Immigrant just has um, a lot of, uh, like, it, it's socially within the society, it's been identified with a lot of just negative history and negative biases and associations and so again intentionality behind that word is causing me to think about you know what is it that I am I am a person that my body transitioned into a different land I migrated here mm-hmm. um, but to be honest uh, because I operate as an Afro-Indigenous person, um, you know, this is a land of Indigenous people, so I'm not an immigrant. This is our people's land, right? Mm. And, and so um, I transitioned, my body transitioned by way of a plane into the United States mm-hmm. from the Dominican Republic, and I migrated here. Um, but the, the immigrant identification and status that is given to people in this country is so incredibly hostile and I I refuse to identify within that and to connect with that Um, I I did an action which was to migrate but that isn't an identity of mine right I picked that up when you mentioned it because Mm -hmm. um, in terms of immigration status it's it's so complicated Mm -hmm. we would have to do a separate show (laughs) but the bottom line is within the context of the negativity for Mm -hmm. immigrants there's also some positivity in that there's organizations and structures and Mm -hmm. legal advocates and etc that are fighting for immigrants right right? Mm -hmm. Um, and undocumented immigrants and so forth. I'm using air quotes when I'm saying these terms. But um, when we talk about migrants, in terms of my work, for example, we will talk about migrant farm workers Mm -hmm. as an example. Mm -hmm. And so these are people who are moving from place to place within the United States after arriving here. And the fight for social justice for them is within a different context. It's the same social justice Mm -hmm. fighting but it's within a different context. So I thought it was important for you to clarify Mm -hmm. because I know people that are advocates for migrants and then there are people who are advocates for immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to understand Mm -hmm. how you are using those two terms Mm -hmm. so that everyone out there can understand exactly what you're saying. Because Mm -hmm. people in my field, you know, public health being one of them because I'm also an educator outside of the field of public health, um, when we hear the term migrant, it has a slightly different mm-hmm. thought pattern to it. And also we have to think of the great black migration right. mm-hmm. yeah. of which my mother was a part of that. So she migrated within the US from the South to the North. And the reason why many black people did that migration was because of Jim Crow. Right. 
mm-hmm. and other, you know, all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. um, that was going on at that time around racism and segregation and all of that. So they migrated to the North, hence the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. So we needed to just clarify that so yeah. that everyone understands. But thank you for sharing that because mm-hmm. that was very interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard it. Yeah, and that what before. I liked in your, yeah. really connected with in your um, explanation of that was yeah. this view of the world as like a collective people. Yes, right? connecting. And so that, and a connecting peoples where if I move to another land for mm-hmm. whatever reason, it's just, right, it's such a humane, collective, like we are one peoples kind mm-hmm. of approach coming from different experiences yeah. where. It, we are we think of migration within the same land right. like you said but we're migrating uh, we can migrate uh, migrate across borders across continents mm-hmm. and we should still view it as just people's moving right yeah. and engaging across the, in, earth. across the earth and yeah. if we took that perspective and claim that lens a little bit more clearly then we wouldn't have this visceral reaction and this right. kind of very negative connotation associated with the conversation around immigration mm-hmm. I really, I've never heard the conversation spoken about in that way, and it was yeah. so, it resonated with me so deeply, because we, I come from a family, as we've talked about on this podcast, who we made world travel and, and global travel a part of our livelihood, right. and as we travel from country to country, we found so much more sameness than difference, right. mm-hmm. and the ability to connect with people on so many different levels that makes it seem silly when we have this conversation of you don't belong here or what you know what I'm saying? This very resistant right. politicized conversation right. around it. Like, you know, you inculcate politics into, you know, my existence and, you know, politicize right. it and then demonize it and I refuse to ascribe to that. Right. I, I, I just really found that so interesting that um, breakdown that you provided because one of the things that I've always known is that when I travel to Latin America, Central America, et cetera, that this race categorization that we have here is very different in other countries. So mm-hmm. a person might not have to fit into all these boxes mm-hmm. that have been established by the Office of Management and Budget in this country. So this is a sticking point because, for example, I always say this with a disclaimer, and that is that this is not my message. I'm merely a messenger on this, reiterating mm-hmm. with the guidelines, say, in the U.S., but according to the United States Office of Management and Budget, we have racial categories and we have ethnic categories, mm-hmm. and that people who are, will use Latinx, would therefore, or Latinx, would therefore be, um, an ethnic category and then you also have a racial category Mm -hmm. so you have a for example black latino person and then you have a white latino person Mm -hmm. etc so with that being said with the discussion of migration you're bringing along with you a whole different way of actually seeing yourself from a racial identification Mm -hmm perspective so when I am for example in the Dominican Republic where I've been many times people will refer to themselves more so as Dominican rather than by their racial category yes 
So the thing about that is, is that when I step outside of the U.S. context and outside of U.S. conversations, which doesn't happen as often, <clears throat> the conversation changes. Hmm. And um, my racial categorization changes. And a part of the, the way that I landed at this self-identification has come from that. It has mm. come from um, the complexities and the inner conflicts that I have had to experience as an individual that I, that lives in black skin coming from the Dominican Republic right. and having a name like Bouquet, which is a very intentional name that I kept that was my grandmother's name. Um, and I am the I believe the only bouquet currently in existence. Um, I believe I have, a, I have a cousin who's a bouquet as well. And the rest of my family is Perez. So when I became a citizen of the United States, I very intentionally decided I'm keeping the bouquet name. Hmm. And the bouquet name is a Creole name that hails from the French side of Hispaniola, which is the Haitian side and is um, in part the um, place from where my people come from and uh, the long history between the Dominican Republic and Haiti has made it so that there's so many complexities in my name and in my lineage that I've had to do some serious excavation as to mm -hmm. where my people come from and try and identify my roots and the thing about trying to do that is that there is so much silence around identity in the Dominican Republic mm. that it, it became this incredibly hard process of um, even the people that you know were very clearly bouquets and very clearly had Haitian descent would not identify as such would not you know identify their Haitian roots and it would leave me perplexed as to whether or not this was a part of my lineage. So it took a very long time to even get there because being um, someone who grew up uh, in a Dominican context, it meant that in Dominican Republic, especially as I was growing up, and even currently, there is no identification as black that is prominent and proud. Mm. We are coming to a place where we're doing that, especially in the U.S., Afro-Dominicans mm -hmm. here. Um, but that isn't really a thing, and there's a history behind that. Trujillo is mostly responsible for that, because if you identified as black and if you spoke a certain way with a little bit of a French twang to your Spanish, you were automatically assassinated. Like, his racial cleansing of 200,000 Haitians and Dominicans that presented as too black for the country were assassinated, you know, and placed in the blood river of the Dominican Republic, between Dominican Republic and Haiti in the 60s. I mean, this was only years ago. So right. imagine, given that legacy, how hard it is for people to identify as black because it's inculcated and ingrained in our minds that we can't identify as black because blackness means death. Hmm. You know? Wow. That, that's intense. Yeah. It is, yeah. That's really intense. And you know, it. so Lupita Nyong'o, mm -hmm. the actress, mm -hmm. you guys know her, she has a new 
children's book, yes. mm. which I'm so excited yeah. about. Yeah, I also in my collection. Yeah, <laughs> I, I write children's books too. I'm in fact finishing the third in a series um, with the little black girl with natural hair, and her name is Himalaya. So when I saw um, her book, I was just like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And she's talking about colorism. So that is her focus because, you know, there's so many issues. We have to tackle them from all different angles. So with the little girl that I write about, she's an inquisitive little black girl. She has a head full of natural hair, and she asks so many questions Mm -hmm. about everything. So the book is really focusing on financial literacy. So the first book is (laughs) Himalaya's Dream Ventures, where she learns about, you know, how her parents rent versus buy and all that. And she gets all these questions answered in her dreams. The second one is Himalaya gets a dog. And there's a point to my saying all this. Himalaya gets a dog is about the fact that we tell our kids um, when they want a pet, that if you get the pet, you're gonna have to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And the child says, okay. And then they nobody ever explains to the child what that means. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the parents start taking care of the Dog. So that book explains that one. And the last one that I'm working on right now, which will be out before the end of this year, because this is the year of return, mm-hmm. the 400th anniversary of the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Now, some people debate that date and say, oh, it wasn't exactly, you know, 400 years. It's close enough, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. There's always historical um, factors that we have to take into consideration. So the third in the series and the last in the series is called Himalaya Gets a Passport. Mm, So Himalaya gets her passport and now she is traveling and I won't say more because it's coming out. Mm -hmm. So as I'm listening to you and I'm looking at you Mm -hmm. because our audience cannot see you, but what I am seeing is you emulate what I see in my little girl character. Mm her skin complexion and I this didn't happen intentionally which is why it's so fascinating to me as I'm talking to you but as I look at your skin complexion and I look at your hair texture uh, because your skin is brown Mm -hmm. almost the same color as my skin as I think look at my daughter my character Himalaya Mm -hmm. is also my daughter's in there Mm -hmm. I'm in there Mm -hmm. my little niece you know all these beautiful black women that I know mm-hmm. who are struggling to function in this society yeah. are in my little character. So now that I, as I draw her, you have just expanded, because I, I write and illustrate my books. Mm-hmm. So as I draw Himalaya, I now see an additional black woman in that child. Mm-hmm. Because what you're sharing with us right now is really deep Mm -hmm. which brings me to Lupita Nyong'o's book Mm -hmm. about colorism because if all of that is happening in terms of language and just not being able to come out openly and say that I am black your skin color is such that you are black so so how does that play out in the Dominican Republic Mm -hmm as well as in the United States for you, given that you identify as an Afro-Latinx person. Yeah. Are you comparing yourself to a person who might have white skin mm-hmm. who also identifies 
as a Latinx person? Well, the thing about my skin is that my skin is highly politicized, you know, like, um, I think that it's, I make a very uh, important and realistic distinction between myself and a person who identifies as a white Latinx individual, especially because the experiences between individuals that identify as Afro-Latinx and individuals that identify as white Latinx has really been, been a, a, a replication of the experiences that any black individual has within a white supremacist society. So we, we experience like a microcosm of that. And there is a lot of um, unpacking that we have to do within the Latinx community in order to identify the very explicit racism that exists within our community that makes it so that people that have my skin color um, are economically assailed, they're interpersonally assailed, systemically assailed on every level. Individuals that exist in black skin in every Latinx country are in the lower strata of society mm. and exist in poverty more often than not. Um, I myself am someone who comes from a very, very light-skinned uh, father who exists in his white skin. He, he can pass as a white person in this world. And my mother is a very, very dark-skinned woman. And I, my sister and I came out as brown-skinned girls. Brown-skinned girls. <laughs> brown-skinned girls. <laughs> um, I love that song. <laughs> Me too. Um, and so... Um, my existence as I navigate through this world is that of a black woman and it is the same within the Latinx society uh, and community. I am, um, within my own Latinx community, I am invisibilized, I am assailed, I am um, spoken of in ways that um, demean my existence, um, that uh, really there's more of this like invisibilizing than anything else because that is I think the one of the more prominent features of you know how we exist in the Latinx context which is violent it is violent but it is the more prominent version versus other versions that exist you know in different societies and so it's tough because it's further traumatizing. So I exist in the trauma of white supremacy within you know, US, the US context, and then I exist within that same white supremacy within the Latinx context. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I fight that. I fight it by um, advocating for my people within Latinx spaces. Right now, I'm in beautiful Miami with you two beautiful souls doing exactly that, right? So I'm going to be attending a Latinx conference um, in which myself and my wonderful Afro-Latinx uh, colleague and sister, we, are, we created an Afro-Latinx special interest group which not only centralizes the experiences and voices and um, life and humanity of Afro-Indigenous peoples in the Latinx context, but it visibilizes it within this Latinx conference so that we can say, hey, by the way, you've forgotten about us and you've invisibilized us so much so that we've had to create a group 
to make sure that you have a space mm -hmm. for our community, which is so much more prominent in terms of numbers than your community, than the white Latinx community within Latinx countries and within the U.S. So we are bigger in numbers. We exist more, and yet we are yes. we are diminished to the point of you know not being even like spoken of talked about invited into these spaces i mean there's so so many ways in which we are excluded and invisibilized and it happens in such insidious ways and so this is a way a form of advocacy while um you know which helps my existence in this body as a latinx person because this is how i fight back the trauma of existing in multiple um you wow. know systems of white supremacy yeah so interesting but i find that so so common like yeah. what you're talking about because yeah. i presented for the first time at the the american educational research association conference this mm -hmm. uh past year and all of the focus of the work is always on right um transformative education um culturally relevant culturally responsive and all of that mm -hmm. and the spaces for the work that was really centralizing that focus by the people people who identify with those groups or with the groups that this work is developed for and in mind of like our sessions were in the basement or in spaces that were not centralized and hyper focused on the in the conference right with the exception of the big hitters in research and academia mm -hmm. who got to be on the main stage yeah. and it's just makes me question always right like how serious are we about this work yes you know when the people who are bringing it to the forefront are at a round table in a basement at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> like you know what i mean well you know that hierarchy of oppression it just exists in everything that you do mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it exists in the workspace, it exists in conference settings, mm -hmm. it exists in all aspects of things. And the, the interesting thing for people, because we have listeners that are outside of our fields, just, you know, all kinds of mm -hmm. people from all walks of life, and not only in this country, but outside of this country. And I think that what we are expressing here is that as you so clearly stated walking around in this black, brown body, however we want to describe it, it makes life very complicated. It, does. it makes you be able to visually see how spaces are being used to oppress us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the example that Courtney just gave is such a great one yeah. because when we go to these kinds of uh, conferences and events and so forth to express some of the social injustice that we are witnessing, then we experience social injustice within the context of that space. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just so ridiculous and it's very hard to bring it to the forefront because there's a process. This is why I don't really, I used to go to conferences using that as an example all the time as part of my scholarly achievements mm -hmm. and so forth, you know, writing an abstract get a paper in and so forth. There's some um, accolades that you get. And I still do this today um, when possible because of my books, you know, yeah. attend them. Mm -hmm. But I, I often attend them with an observation that is similar to what Courtney is pointing out. And that is that 
uh, unless we are in control of these events, mm -hmm. unless we are putting them together ourselves, which is often not the case, mm -hmm. we can be relegated to the proverbial bottom mm -hmm. um, as we feel we are relegated in society. So we have to pay attention to those kind of things. So for me, I found as a solution, the best way for me to go across all of that is through writing. Mm. Because anybody can pick up the books, anybody can read them and so forth. Mm -hmm. And in those books, I'm able to express freely without being at the bottom, yeah. you know, what I need to say. And even that has its complications because then your book has to somehow rise to the top mm -hmm. so that more people can read it. Mm -hmm. And there's selectivity in that process yeah. that we have no control over unless you're saying, being, or doing certain things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So I, I, I think it would be great for us now to find out, unless, Courtney, you have something else you want to say in regard to that? No, I was I was going to switch gears with my next question anyway. So Okay, good. Let's see if we're well, on the same Well, why don't you ask your question? Because I, I just, it I might be want, the same. I just want to say, like, one word that I know I say yeah. a lot, but I think it's, it's relevant always in these kinds of observations, yeah. like what you made. I, I made... An observation that I relate to Courtney about um, the dearth in presentations that were centered on Afro, you know, indigenous people within this national Latinx psychological conference that mm -hmm. I'm attending, and the 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 common thread is trauma. We're being re-traumatized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are, when we are being relegated, you know, to these like unseen times and spaces, that's us being, you know, downplayed in these. Spaces and it's erasure, yeah. right, of our of our voices and you know of our narratives and, and so it's trauma to me. It's trauma. Like I, I when I experience it, I take it in. It it, it penetrates my soul mm -hmm. and it hurts me. I know I'm I'm an empath too, so I definitely take in a lot of you know emotion around it. But that's the thing that you know to me becomes most frustrating because I see that my people in every landscape of the industry that we might work in, we experience these micro traumas mm -hmm. that then, you know, become like amalgamated and, and become like larger traumas for us. Yeah, so maybe we can begin to think about, um, I believe this is an intergenerational conversation. Well, you see, we are always on the same page. See, oh, this so is you're, where I was going. Well, yeah. I'm not going to say that because I want to hear what well, you no, have to say. No, because I was going to switch gears a, a little bit from, yeah. not too much though, because yeah. um, I think what we've been talking about all along mm -hmm. run along two things, which is intergenerational um, experiences of things mm -hmm. and... Um, identification with things and then also continuous intergenerational traumas right mm -hmm. and I know you strongly place your work within a field of um, addressing eradicating healing intergenerational traumas mm -hmm. and I just wanted to ask you to share your thoughts around that and define your work for us a little bit and before okay. so I don't forget that thought so yeah. you have that set in your mind what you're going to talk about, her question. Yeah, her question is beautiful. Okay, so I, I just wanted to quickly, before we get into that, mm -hmm. say what I was thinking, because it is along the line of the fact that this is an intergenerational conversation. Mm -hmm. And so for me, in, in my generation, I can't speak for everyone, 
But I feel that there is a point where you get past looking at this as trauma. Hmm. And you begin to look at this as a situation that you can handle mm -hmm. with more power. And the sad part is that our young people, you know, are experiencing mm -hmm. trauma because you should not be at that point. This should have been rectified for you. And so when I woke up this morning and I saw that Elijah Cummings had passed, yes. I just want to give a little, you know, praise to him because this man, although I never met him personally and I've only seen him, you know, as a warrior out there in Maryland and so forth, when I heard that he passed, my first thought was that this man experienced trauma. And I said this in... Yeah know on certain terms to you all this morning that I would see him on television yelling and screaming and fighting and so forth. I felt that his life had a lot of trauma because he was fighting yeah. oppression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 68 is young to leave us. So if you haven't had a chance to really look at the work of Elijah Cummings in the context of our discussion of trauma, I think you should look at it and 100%. see how much energy he used to put out mm -hmm. to fight. I mean, he didn't hold back. He was like really screaming and yelling his position and trying to get us to hear him. Yeah. So the fact that we have you all coming forward now and you're still in that state of trauma, mm -hmm. that's a shame, yeah. which is why we're so glad that you're doing the work that you do. So yeah. please tell us about it. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> want to honor Elijah Cummings and, you know, like just honor him as now an ancestor and a young ancestor which is um you know we, within the context of how we see it perhaps a shame and and maybe within the context of where he is perhaps a blessing so um and the thing is that very much like elijah cummings i am an externalizer i externalize you know um the ways that i i deal with what happens on this earth towards myself and my people is in a very externalized form so it's not to the point of how he used to externalize and, and, the, and the, the power and the potency you know of his energy but it definitely is an externalized form and it's because I realized that the internalization of it or the, the you know kind of um, soaking up all the energies of what's happening in this world and what happens to the people around me and the people that I deeply love my community my proximal community and my extended community like isn't something that I can just kind of hold on to myself so I, I realize that I have to honor who I am and who I am as an externalizer and I externalize now in a way that's different it used to be by verbalizing things in a very um, energetic way passionate and it still is in many regards in specific settings um, but I had transitioned, you mentioned the point, the point, you know, the word rectify, which I thought was a really beautiful term. And I want to, you know, coincide that term with Courtney's words about, you know, healing intergenerational trauma. So healing and rectifying and the two of you kind of, you know, really brought about terms that coincide, you know, to really centralize like the kind of work that I do. So. I consider myself to be a healer and I consider myself to be a healer in transition so I still am recognizing that there are a lot of the practices that I want to inculcate into 
my healing network and the way that I produce healing for my people that I haven't quite learned yet and immersed myself in yet. So I'm in transition and I honor that and I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and at the same time, I do understand that I have gifts and training and, you know, credentials, however you may want to see those credentials from a Eurocentric lens, from an Afrocentric lens, you know, however you may want to see them. But they are credentials that I honor and that I work really hard for. So as someone who is in psychology, I definitely, um, you know, honor the fact that I am coming from a helping profession and I consider uh, that profession as some, a profession that has helped me to, to land at where I am as, as someone who identifies as a healer. I very specifically identify as a healer to an individuals that identify as black, indigenous, people of color. And I'm very intentional about making sure that I centralize my work around what healing needs to look like for my community. Again, in transition, working through what does healing need to look like for my community and making sure that I continue to learn and inculcate that information into my work. But that is um, the central focus of my work. Mm -hmm. So I have worked with people across the lifespan. And it started off with people that were older in age and in transi it transitioned more so in the last year and a half into working also with children and thinking about what are the ways that we can build resilience factors in, you know, and, and integrate that into a children's psyche, children's psyche, so that they can transition through life not having the weight that we've had to carry. Right, right. right. And mm -hmm. so that is the preventative model of psychology or of healing rather mm -hmm. than like going in and you know I'm a wounded soul I'm carrying so much weight I'm bag lady like Erica Badu <laughs> and I don't know how to put these bags down right? mm -hmm. and that's the way that I navigate the world and I don't know because I'm getting hit with so much discrimination on a daily basis I don't even know how to capture any of it anymore so I just like stay like an open vessel that's just receiving right mm -hmm. and so instead of it being that way how do we armor children you know in a way that's safe and sustainable so that they can navigate through life in a way in which they can embody cultural racial pride and at the same time have this like invisible buffer against the discrimination mm -hmm. that they're going to experience at the systemic level and at the interpersonal level mm -hmm. and so that's the thing that we understand from research Individuals that are black in the field of psychology have done very extensive research, very beautiful research around the, the factors that lead to resiliency and buffer the effects of discrimination. And more often than not, those are racial identity saliency and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Like those are two markers of especially in black communities mm -hmm. that have had four centuries a buffering effect against the experiences that we have on a daily basis. And so it's important to incorporate both of those into the work that we do within our communities in order to make sure that we're inculcating resiliency factors into the work and putting people out into the world, you know, feeling um, more armored uh, to combat what is likely to be coming their way. Hmm. I would and, agree with those yeah, two and this, findings. What she just said is exactly why I 
as an educator and as a person who educates pre-service teachers, so teachers who are about to enter classrooms for the first time, I'm very grateful to have um, people like uh, Marielle and some of our, our other um, colleagues who are in similar fields in my you know ear and in my who I'm able to reach out to because I feel like the work we're trying to do in education right is similar but we're doing it in this vacuum where I remember we went to an event together an education event and both of us kind of had this feeling of why haven't we been bringing each other to these kind of events because our work is so informed by the other mm -hmm. And in my field, in education, we are the first person a lot of times to go out of schools is the psychologist, is the person who was placed there to attend to the student's uh, mental and emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. And we'll pull somebody in who's maybe assigned for like a whole district or a whole cluster of schools, and that person is worked thin and overworked and kind of has to give blanket solutions and there's not really the ability to, to dig in mm -hmm. and so I don't know as I'm sitting here what I hear is like why there's always the the school of psychology is usually within a school of education are very closely connected but our work never meets mm -hmm. anywhere right mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of how transformative all of the stuff we're doing over here in education could be if we more intentionally not just bridged but wove those two practices together yeah mm. well i think the work actually is bridged with you like mm. courtney rose mm -hmm. dr courtney rose <laughs> is bridging right like i think it's going to take one person at a time to yeah. build a movement like i've seen courtney's work transition her mm -hmm. language transition mm -hmm. into language that's inculcating self-care practices in the classroom, right? Inculcating how we, you know, um, uh, build emotional language, mm -hmm. um, you know, into the curriculum um, in a way that is culturally fluent, right? Not just like, you know, social-emotional learning and, right. you know, let's throw this, like, very basic and Eurocentric, right. you know, structure platform onto like the school yeah. but how do we like really integrate the multiple factors of what is essential especially mm -hmm. for black and brown children to be able to thrive in a school system mm -hmm. and you're doing that right so it's yeah. like well you know I want to add something here because I'm listening mm -hmm. to you all and um, I, I agree a hundred percent about the racial identity and the spirituality and, mm -hmm. and, I, and spirituality rather than religion mm -hmm. right and that right. was a very deliberate I'm sure intentional <laughs> and then the bridge that you talk about between education and psychology that's also really important and of course there's the health component so mm -hmm. there's so many dynamics but I think one of the most important things sounds so simple and base but it has to do it's love Mm -hmm. It's unconditional love. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. the most important things, after we go to these institutions, and yeah. we have to be very careful about this, and this is not to disparage the institutions, because I feel that the education that I receive and that Courtney received and that you received, mm -hmm. these are things that we can take pride in because we worked really hard mm -hmm. to get mm -hmm. these okay. credentials that they call mm -hmm. them, right? Yeah. 
But beyond those credentials, there's something greater than that. And I think that it is love. It is the love that we receive unconditionally from our parents. Mm -hmm. And I think that parents are sometimes um, cast aside in this discussion and it is not understood that the true resilience does not come from these spaces where you meet them, but the true resilience needs to be in the home. Mm -hmm. It needs to be that no matter what a child experiences when he or she goes out the door and all that we are talking about, mm -hmm. but that when they come home, they experience love and they experience unconditional love not from the time that they are born and they're cute and all that kind of stuff and then they're little and so forth, but I mean for their entire life. Yes. You know, as I say to my children, my love for you is unconditional until I am in the grave and I'm hoping it's beyond that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is unconditional. It's not something that is here just for a little while. It's not something where I'm gonna send you off to school mm -hmm. and I'm gonna expect that the education educators and the psychologists and et cetera are gonna give you what you need. You're gonna get what you need here and when you go to those spaces, if they don't do what they need, they're supposed to be doing, I'm gonna be there. Mm -hmm. And I do understand that not every parent can do that because of all that is going on in this society. Mm -hmm. Like some parents, you know, they want to do that, but for whatever reason they have been rendered incapable of yeah. doing so. Mm -hmm. And that's when we fill those holes. We don't replace them. Right, right. You know, sometimes when we are being taught theories and models and concepts and so forth about how we are to love our own people, we forget that we were loving and caring for our own people before you all put these institutions together. Mm -hmm. We were loving and caring for our own people if we look at our ancestors. Mm -hmm in villages and in you know our spaces of our people with mm -hmm. our history and our culture and that has been taken away from us right. and new stuff has been reinvented and sometimes we speak in words that our people do it's like i don't even know what you're talking about right. what is mm -hmm. it that you are saying and I think we really have to get down to breaking it down and yeah. speaking the way we truly speak and so when i'm in an academic setting I loved W.E.B. Du Bois's book, but I learned at some point there is no double consciousness. Mm -hmm. I am who I am. This is the way I speak in my house, and this is the way I speak in your institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a young girl, we used to joke because my mom would get on the phone, and mm -hmm. she was who she was in the house, and then she would get on the phone, and she, hello. And she'd speak in a whole different voice, and we would joke and say, Mommy's speaking in her white voice. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I don't have a white voice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is my voice. This is who I am. Yeah. And, and this, you know, speaking in clear terms um, and knowing when to use the bigger vocabulary, not use the bigger vocabulary, and all that, I try not to go there anymore. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk to our people yeah. and let's just love our people. Right. And when we are writing in a scholarly way to get published in a scholarly journal or if we're at a scholarly conference or whatever, we speak in these terms because the people in those spaces understand what we're saying. Mm -hmm. But when we're around our people and we're doing our work, let's talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Let's say what needs to be said. When we see children not doing what they're supposed to be doing, let's just tell them straight up and when we talk to our own children, 
let's tell them from childhood to adulthood, you're not doing this right. And let's talk about this so that we can get this straightened out. So I think that we have to cross lines as black people. We can get our degrees and we can have our credentials and we can, you know, be in those spaces, but we got to keep this thing real because what we are missing, the trauma is based on a lack of love. Mm -hmm. We are not loved. We are not loved in this society because of our brown skin. Mm -hmm. And that's your problem. But Not I think mine. That it, it's a reframe that's needed, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I don't need your white gaze. I don't need your white love. Right. In order to experience myself as a loved person, as a, as a person worthy of being loved. I was incredibly, am incredibly fortunate to have an abundance of love in my home. Yes. With my parents. And the outcome. With love. <laughs> the outcome yeah. is this beautifully huh. centered young you. woman. So you can see. <laughs> no, but you can see <laughs> that you were loved. Yeah. No, yeah. it's apparent that you were yeah. loved. My parents yeah. didn't have much. They always said this. And I think that <laughs> I, I have to reframe even that statement. They would always say, we don't have much, but we have love. And we'll give you, we'll give you all the love in the world. And even, you know, when it came to, like, needing guidance around, like, you know, college being a you know the first person in my family to attend college along with my sister like it was you know I didn't have like the uh, specific guidance but I had the love right to help me to feel grounded mm-hmm. and then seek out resources where I needed them right and so the thing is that I, I I resonate with that so deeply that love is incredibly powerful and when it comes to like the ways that I've been able to stay afloat in these very violent spaces that I operate in um, and that we all do is because I've had well the the kind of sisterly bond that that Courtney and I share is grounded on love. Mm-hmm. my my friend Lucy um, it has a a relationship with me that where I feel her love even in like her trying to increase my consciousness that's her love yes know? like the conversation we are having here is grounded on love when I engage with Yolanda who we all know Yolanda, Dr. Yolanda a C. professor mm-hmm. a professor yes, yes. professor Celie at Ruiz. TC let's yes. Yolanda Silly Ruiz, mm-hmm. professor right. at Columbia Teachers College. We will call her Beautiful name. Yes. yes, because when I used to visit Courtney on campus mm-hmm. and I would see her mm-hmm. from time to time, she would walk by. But she would stop and give a hug and say something beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's love. That's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah, that's love. And the thing is that she she was the first person in my academic spaces that was not afraid and mm-hmm. was like modeling for me the actual word, I love you. Yes. And I, I never experienced that. Yeah. And then I was like, wow, that is love. It's pure love. And I could feel yeah. her love. Mm-hmm. You could her feel it. Telling me. And yes. so I, I was like, that, I love that. And I love her and I love love and I want to inculcate that into everything that I do. Mm-hmm. So right. I want to navigate this world with love. My partner at home, is, he fills me with love. My family fills me with love. And so I go into these spaces and I'm very intentional about that. There are days when I have a really bad day and I'm like, I'm going to my mom's house and I'm going there because she's going to fry me fish and plantains. <laughs> <laughs> and that fish and plantains is going to have so much love in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like her seasoning is love. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. her like 
putting that oil and she put yeah. that olive oil in the you yeah. know and she like fries that fish to perfection and and my dad fishes the fish yeah so my dad is bringing in love into the home by right. fishing the fish and my mom is scaling and frying see it. now and this this, this is what we need you know yeah. like it's yeah. beautiful it's, it's like yeah. it's a full circle of life happening with love at every juncture and i feel like you know that is how our people operate, and that's how we operated that's before right. these before all of these things that lives. we are discussing. And that's yeah. why I wanted to go to that because, as a professor on campus, particularly when I was teaching Africana studies and all different kinds of courses, one of the things that I knew that I had to offer to my students, particularly the black students, but not just the black students. So I want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. Because I have white students that took all of my courses and they would literally express like, God, Dr. Rose, I just love you. You are the best professor and et cetera. And, that is, and I can see some of their faces right now because I know these people and they have stayed in my life afterwards. And for my black students in particular, mm -hmm. I said, what I'm gonna bring to you all is knowledge straight from the heart and mind mm -hmm. but i'm also going to love you through this process mm -hmm. because this is a very difficult process mm -hmm. and the things that you're going to have to hear me say and tell you about and teach you and so forth it's painful mm -hmm. but we're going to do this in a state of love and conversation and dialogue because in actuality i really care about you i really really do yeah. so when they would come to my office outside of class mm -hmm invariably it would go beyond just the class discussion they wanted to talk to me about other experiences that they were having in their lives yeah. hence as an example starting of a support group for the black women who were being decimated on campus because they were wearing their hair naturally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we started a support group called naturalist cooling not mm -hmm. so that we could get together and have some you know little snacks and so forth get in a circle oh, and talk about how they were being told they were unprofessional, mm -hmm. how they weren't being seen by black men, how they weren't, you know, all of the things that they were experiencing on campus as they walked around. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful young women. Yeah. So what we need to bring to our work, I believe, is all of our expertise, but we need to put that expertise in silos because yeah. truthfully, Although you are providing us with theories and models and concepts and resources and all that, you may not really understand mm -hmm. what is going down. So you can't tell me what is happening. Right. Yeah. You can just give me tools yeah. that I can be added to my existing toolbox. Mm -hmm. Because my toolbox was one of history, it was one of yes. love, mm -hmm. it was one of ancestry, That's right. it was one of people that I looked at with my eyes mm -hmm. who might not have achieved all of your accoutrements and some of them went beyond what you have achieved. Right. Mm -hmm. But I witnessed that and so that power is within me and as I get older, that power becomes more unleashed yeah. because I don't have to put up with you telling me what needs to be done for That's me right. to be whole. That's yeah, right. and I don't need to put up with you telling me what needs to be done for my people to be whole. Right. I know how to do this because right. I've lived it, that. and mm -hmm. you all are living it. Mm -hmm. And later on, because right now you're already fierce young women, <laughs> and you're already right. loving and beautiful and all of those kind of things. 
But there's something that's going to emerge in you as time progresses if you allow it and if you will listen. Because I think one of the things that we, we have lost is that our elders were everything in our ancestral communities. They were the wise ones. They have the wisdom. Mm -hmm. And now we have to get back to that where we can come and sit down with our elders and say, what happened when you were growing up? What did you experience? What happened when you were going through school? What happened when you started teaching? What happened when you started writing? What happened when you started traveling? You know, all this stuff. What was it like? What did you experience? Mm -hmm. And let them tell you what they learned because they know what they experienced. Yes, absolutely. And you're just beginning to experience it and, and we have to be here to help you. And that's what I meant by rectification. Yeah. I think that it's not getting rectified because our elders are going into nursing homes. Mm. Our elders are experiencing mass incarceration. Mm. Our elders' wisdom is locked up in their brains through trauma because we are not getting them, gathering them, and listening to them, and respecting them, and loving them mm -hmm. through their end. And this is what I see in other cultures that I admire. Mm -hmm. I admire it when I see how elders are treated in other cultures, and I'm just in, in the state of shock about how we treat our elders in this society. Yeah, so that love that you're feeling and that fish and all that, you all have to learn how to do it. Yeah. It has to be yeah. a daily practice. Yeah. Yeah. As you're speaking right now, I was already thinking about how can I connect with my elders on a daily basis. I lost two elders recently, as recent as you know, a year ago and a few months ago. And you know, my grandmother and her, her brother, who were two people that inculcated in me so much truth about who I am and who they uh. were and where we came from as people. And I got a, the most vivid memory of being able to sit down with them and get a very clear glimpse of this entire experience and these were people that were you know incredibly incredibly um, economically disadvantaged um, I remember walking a mile with my grandmother with a five gallon you know bucket of water on her head um, in the Dominican Republic when I was little and uh, my great uncle he you know, lived in the mountains and, you know, was someone who just preached the word uh, to people and, you know, was a very spiritual soul. And so I, I just, the daily connection, I have a daily uh, meditation practice in which I invite um, different ways of healing my soul before I go out into the world. And mm -hmm. I, in speaking about love, I'm realizing that these recent ancestors, including my more distal ancestors, like Mama Tingo, a Dominican revolutionary who fought for the people and the people's land and was assassinated as a result of it. Um, you know, people like that that I can connect with, you know, prior to engaging with the world on a daily basis because engaging with them is engaging with love you know so i think it's like it's something that we miss like people navigate the, this world as people of color and we're like lost in it and we're like i'm in pain i'm transitioning and <laughs> uh, you know i have a mental illness and i'm this and i'm that and i think that it's because we're forgetting there is there are roots yes. that are there that you just have to sit with just sit in a corner you know, and connect with your ancestors. Sit mm -hmm. in a corner and connect with your spiritual self and 
engage in that mindfulness extract that pain from mm-hmm. yourself and and then engage with the world it's going to be really mm-hmm. hard but you're going to be further equipped to be able to do that and all of that is love and so i'm just i'm so glad that we're encapsulating this conversation mm-hmm. around love me too Lord yeah for sure. and i i think um courtney i don't know if you have any last comments but we're going to begin to wrap up now mm-hmm. and i think this is a perfect place to wrap up because I think that it all begins with love mm-hmm. and it must end with love. Yes. Yeah, it cannot end with trauma. It cannot end with us just spending our time on this um, undefinable solution oriented focus mm-hmm. that doesn't get us to rectification yes. because we know what the answer is. The answer is that there's no, there's no such thing in my mind, and this is a personal opinion of white love and black love and brown love and all that. It's love. Mm-hmm. You either love me for who I am and what I am, or you don't love me at all and you keep it moving mm-hmm. because I know where to find love. Mm-hmm. It might not be from you. It might be from someplace else. Mm-hmm. And then when you feel that you're being traumatized in any way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. you have the power and the wherewithal to move away from that and go in the direction of love. Let that pull you. Mm-hmm. Don't spend your time in the trauma. Mm-hmm. Spend your time with love. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. What a great way to end. So before I close out, Muriel, do you want to tell the good people where they can find you yes. and your work? Yes, absolutely. So um, Instagram is the place where um, I am like kind of always just stuck to my Instagram community and, and engaging in conversations around intergenerational trauma and they can find me at, at Marielle Bouquet um, on there and then um, also cultural therapy is the organization that I built in order to connect individuals of color to um, clinicians, mental health practitioners who serve communities of color from a very culturally relevant and responsive uh, perspective and so people can also if they wish to find their way into healing within the mental health practice that they can find it there and so um, those are the general two ways and there's a lot more like tools and, and techniques and, and information that I'm hoping to disseminate to the community within my patreon community which is patreon.com slash so all right, find me there. You got all the info. Check her out. Um, that was great. Her <laughs> summary. You did that's that. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Take a find note. Here. <laughs> and please find her this work. I mean, it's personally touched me, and I'm not just saying that because she's my girl. Like, it's it's necessary work, and I'm I'm an extended thank you for for doing it and doing it with so much love. Um, being so close to her, I do know like this is not like just for the follows for the likes for the nothing this woman does this work for the love of herself and her people mm-hmm. and yeah. it comes through in everything that she does yeah. so check her out it's the real deal um <laughs> yes thank you so much for joining us thank this you was so this was yes. more than we we're feeling we're feeling so full the energy yes. in this room right yeah. now is so Wonderful. Yes, the roses. But anyway, even back the to dog started barking. Yeah. Okay, like if he doesn't even bark, he's upstairs. Yeah, it was crazy with yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay. As always, you can reach out to us by following us on Instagram at Ivy Roses Podcast. Also, same on Twitter or sending us an email at Ivy Roses Podcast at Gmail. Um, dot com. I think that's right. If not, I'll fix it. It's in the I think that's right. It sounds right. It's in the description, yeah. as always, y'all. <laughs> Click the link. It'll send us an email. Um, if you have anything you want us to pass along to Marielle, we'd love to hear or add to this conversation. Let us know. Drop us a line. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.